take your uh, worship folder. You'll see that we have our passage here on the front. I like it when you read scripture out loud with me. Let's read God's word together. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, I've been telling you about the very nature of these letters and telling you about the purpose of the book of Revelation. It is a unique encounter with the Lord Jesus that the Apostle John had. Um, he is the recording scribe of what he sees, what he hears, of what Jesus is teaching and what Jesus is saying. It was not unusual for the churches to have such an encounter or a vision from the Lord and then to read it into the churches. What's unusual here is that normally a circular letter like this that would be going out to seven churches would have the body of the letter first, which begins around chapter 4, and then to have specific messages that were sealed for each of the churches so the church would have its own individual message. This is not how this was written. It was written with the messages to the churches first. And it was written in such a way that every church would hear every message. So you can imagine we've gotten to the third church on the journey. We're in the city of Pergamum. The people of the church, the followers of Jesus, are listening and they've heard Smyrna and they've heard Ephesus. And you can imagine them listening and saying, man, Jesus, you get those Ephesians. They lost their first love. You let them have it. Gosh, I'm so glad you're telling them off. <laughs> then they get to the Smyrna church, and they're listening, and they go, man, it's a good thing we don't live in Smyrna because he's asking them to die for him. Then suddenly it's Pergamum's turn. It's, it's their turn to listen to what Jesus, they've listened to what he said to Ephesus. They've listened to what he said to Smyrna. And in Ephesus, he says, you lost your first love. In Smyrna, he says, I'm going to ask you to do for me what I did for you. I'm going to ask you to die for me. But in Pergamum, and I, I'm not even going to work at the buildup here. Pergamum, he goes, you're a compromised church. You're a compromised church. Listen, when the letter starts off, I am the one with a double-edged sword. You know it's not going to be a light letter. It's not going to be fun and games. It's not going to be a nice, we went to the ballpark and we did this. And It's going to be 
a rather in-your-face kind of letter. Now, the nature of a double-edged sword is prophetic. It's the very nature of prophecy. In the Bible, prophecy always has a double edge. On the one side of the prophecy is the, is the heart of God to heal his people. It's the heart of God to reveal what's in their way, what's keeping them from being the church that he wants them to be, to, from being the person or the people that he wants them to be. It's, it's a revelation of that which is good about them and that which is blessed in them, that which he values in them. But a, being a double-edged sword means it also cuts. It also says what you don't want to hear. Uh, hopefully all of you noticed as you came in today, you noticed the beautiful new floors that we have. You don't have to be prophetic to notice that. Okay, but... If you are somewhat prophetic, you probably looked and said, man, those walls are ugly. Right? So it, some of you are going, yeah, I'm a prophet. I saw that. <laughs> well, here's what happens. If we leave that long enough, you won't notice it anymore. No matter how peeled paint is or how bad walls look, if you live long enough and grow comfortable with it in a shambles, you only get mad when people point it out. You only, why are you judging us? Why are you saying we're inadequate? Why are you saying this is inappropriate? We've had these 1989 walls since 1989, you know, we, uh, 1998, sorry. Uh, and, and, and they're sacred to us. Even that border, you know, that 1998 country border around there, somebody's mother put that up there. And you shouldn't touch it kind of a thing. Don't talk to us about it sort of thing. Now, don't get me wrong. Please give additional money and we will get rid of that wall. There, I have no moral, no moral ties to anything that has to do with that. But I'm trying to make a point. It's amazing how... You get used to smells. You get used to how something looks. You get used to how something feels. And if someone comes and shakes you out of your comfort, the anger's at them. This is why, if you look in the Old Testament, the prophets were put in prison. They were killed. They were not listened to. They were abused in any, any way and every way. They were called you know, troublemakers, whatever it was. Because when Jesus comes with the sword, he also comes and reveals all the things we have become comfortable with. All the things that have compromised our integrity, have compromised our focus, our purpose, our vision of him. And what he shows in this letter to Pergamum is he will not stand for a compromised vision of Jesus. And he will not for a compromised vision of the church. The Lord of the church has something against the church. And the Lord of the church can take action against his church. And so he does in this passage. Now, the, the well, look at that. <laughs> Prophetic. <laughs> for the wall. Something has happened. We are having all kinds of fun this morning. 
I don't need it if we, you want to just get rid of it. I don't know why it did that. It's not going anywhere, so you'll have to give to get rid of it. <laughs> let's, let's talk, let, let me talk to you about these, the two sides of the sword that Jesus reveals in his message. The first side of the sword is, in many ways, the prophetic side of the blessing of the Lord. There's always a blessing in prophecy. There's always a building up. There's always a, a reconstructing of what has even been destroyed in a sense. And what he says in blessing, on the sword side of blessing, is he says, I know where you dwell. Now, normally when somebody says that, they say it with a threat. I know where you live. But for, this, for Jesus, this is a, a word of comfort to us. It's a word of encouragement to us. He says, I know what it is to be a Christian where you live. I know what it costs you. I know what sacrifices are being demanded of you to be a true follower of Christ in the midst of that culture. Now, Pergamum was a very interesting capital city in Asia Minor. It's still there in Turkey. I think they simply changed the name from Pergamum to Bergamum, but it's, it's still there in Turkey. It was a capital city of the Roman Empire. It was one of the regional capitals. So it was, it was powerful and it was, it was influential. It was an advanced city of its day. It had, uh, it had this, uh, uh, like a sanitarium hospital that was given to the god Asclepius. And, uh, you know, you see in, in medicine sometimes the, the woven snakes or the entwined snakes. And the, that was the symbol of this god. And there was a huge... Uh, sanitarium type thing where the, the, the emperor himself used to go there to be healed because of the, the healing reputation of the area. There was a library there of over 200,000 volumes. It was a library that, that rivaled Alexandria. As a matter of fact, from the Greek, the word parchment comes from Pergamum. If you know what I'm talking about in terms of parchments, uh, things that were written on and that ancient way of, of preserving writing came from the city of Pergamon. But Pergamon was also a city of every single Roman and Greek gods, and there were, uh, there were temples to them everywhere. Uh, the Temple of Zeus was a huge temple that you had to pass through. Zeus was the highest of the Greek and Roman gods. You had to pass through the temple to come into the city. So even entrance into the city, there was some sense of paying worship or tribute to the Roman god Zeus. On a high hill above the city, looking back on this, this hill that overlooked the city, was every temple to every god and goddess of the Greek and Roman pantheon. And so the, the culture was dedicated to the gods. And, they, you know, in a sense, the way they looked at it is if I need, if I need power in my life, I go to the temple of Zeus and I sacrifice. If, I, if, if I'm not able to have a child, I go to the temple and I, I give an offering for fertility. If I, if I want to curse my enemies, there was a temple for cursing and destroying your enemies. And you go and you pay tribute and then the, there would be a curse laid on your, on your enemies. There was every single aspect of life in Pergamum was controlled by this religious power. 
Now, what Jesus says is that this was not some kind of unsophisticated, primitive sort of worship. He says that behind every one of those gods and goddesses is actually a throne of Satan. This is where Satan's throne is. Jesus isn't saying, just ignore those primitives. Don't worry about the wood or the stone or, or the worship there. It's, it's nothing. It's superstition. No, he's saying it's empowered by the enemy of your soul. As a matter of fact, I believe what he's saying here is very, very telling for us if you'll let it come into your heart, and that is this. That oftentimes, your alignment with the Holy Spirit, your alignment with God, will get you noticed by the enemy of your soul. This little band of Christians, this little group of Christians who seemingly were insignificant. The Romans called them atheists because they didn't believe in the gods. This seemingly insignificant, ineffective group of Christians have so incurred the wrath of Satan himself that Jesus is saying behind the attacks that you're experiencing and the oppression and the persecution you're experiencing is actually the work of Satan, the vices of Satan. Now, in the, in the book of Acts, we see this. We see these behind-the-scenes kind of narratives that are going on there. There's, there's a, a story that, that is told by Dr. Luke in, in Acts where there's a group of there's a group of people who decide they want the same power that they see Paul exercising. So they begin to start a cast-out-demons ministry. And so their, their formula for casting out the demons is this, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out of this person. So the demons look at him and say, we know Jesus, and we know Paul. We don't know you, and they beat the crap out of them. Now, for some of you, that might scare you. For me, that fires me up. And the reason is, I want them to know my name. I want them to know who I am. I want to irritate them. I want to be so annoying to them that they will do whatever they can to get me out of alignment with the Spirit. See, one of the things that this passage is saying is that you may not think you're that effective. You may not think you're that impactful. But if you're in alignment with the name of Jesus and you're in alignment with the Spirit of God, then the enemy himself quakes at your presence. Some people say to me, they come to me and say, oh, my life has this circumstance and these people are bothering me and this is happening to me. And I ask them these questions. I said, are there decisions that you've made that are bad decisions? No, I don't think so. Are there places where you absolutely know that you're out of alignment with the will of God, that you're disobeying God? No, I don't think so. Then I said, then really you should be rejoicing because the enemy thinks you dangerous enough to attack you. Come on, that's, I don't know why you're sitting there sort of just like lumps right now. I'm giving you my best stuff right now. You hear me? See, if you spend your whole life thinking you'll never be attacked, then you've never been effective. If you think you can get everything in order so that the enemy can't do anything to you, you're deluding yourself. He has willing participants all around you. Jesus himself is, is, is the one that's explaining the behind-the-scenes actions, the sources. And you have to decide, am I in the midst of this? 
attack on me or this accusation of me or this temptation of me? Am I going to compromise so that it will stop? Or am I, gonna, am I going to stand up to it so that I overcome it? This is what he's talking about. As a matter of fact, he gives them these, really, I'd say, three accolades or three praiseworthy statements or declarations about it. He says, one, you hold fast to my name. That's powerful. Secondly, he says, you, even, even though you have seen what it costs, you do not deny your faith or your faith in me. They have been courageous. And he gives an example um, Pergamon's a little different from some of the other places, particularly different from Smyrna. Smyrna, you're talking about an extended, continuous persecution. In Pergamon, you're talking about more random kinds of persecution. In many ways, the Roman Empire has not, in Pergamon, yet realized the threat that Christianity is to them. But there, it's so interwoven into society that if you oppose them, in any way, it could mean your death. And that's probably what happened to this man named Antipas. He, he, he could have been an athlete. Because if you were going to participate in the games, you had, to, uh, you had to worship Caesar as your Lord and God. You could not perform in an Olympic contest unless at the same time you honored Caesar as God and Lord of your life. And so if he was an athlete, preparing as athletes did for Rio or something, and he was unwilling to give that obedience to Caesar, then it would not have been unreasonable that they would have taken him out and killed him. The same is true if you were part of a trade guild, you were part of a union, you, were, you wanted to be a, a, a rise up in status in society. In this society, every single group had their festivities. They had their... Uh, they had their uh, feast and all of these things and before you could ever eat you had to pronounce and profess your your belief in Caesar as Lord and God and before you could even eat before you could rise up before you could work before you could be a person of status in the cultures you had to compromise and say this is this is my God this is my Lord Antipas was unwilling to do that legend goes that he wasn't just killed quickly uh, the way that history records it is that actually he was put on, a, on the stake and slow roasted so that they would, everyone ha had to watch him die. Slow, very slow, painful, cruel death. Now the reason is that if you're really going to make people do something, then you have to show them what the punishment is if they don't do it. And so they were trying to preclude and then exclude anyone from following Christ. And so Jesus said, look, you watch what happened to Antipas and still you hold fast to my name. To Jesus, that was meaningful. To him, that was powerful. But something had taken place before you see sword side two, where though they were orthodox in their beliefs and true to their doctrine, something had happened to their hearts. And inside, too, what you have is Jesus beginning to say, okay, now I'm going to make you uncomfortable. I have these things against you. Now, again, you've got to kind of realize when a letter opens up with, I am the one who has a double-edged sword, 
some bad things are about to be said about you in the letter. It isn't going to be a pleasant letter. And so it's important, though, that I think we understand this distinction. Will you, will you track with me on this? this is, it's important that you get this. He's going to talk to them specifically about how they have compromised their faith, they have compromised their hearts with two things. Uh, religious uh, devotion to idols through feast and eating and through sexual immorality. Now, who he comes after in this is not the people who are struggling. He comes after those who teach them to no longer struggle, but to compromise. You see, the Lord Jesus is utterly and completely aware of what a broken group of people we are. He is completely aware of how much we struggle. There's no temptation that you have ever faced that is new. There's no temptation that you have ever gone through that isn't common to every human being. Whether it's sexual or whether it's lying or whether it's uh, hypocrisy or whatever it is, none of our sins are new. Jesus knows them all. He does not come down on or, or, or lack compassion with the struggle, with our brokenness. He knew what he was getting into when he took us on. What he does come down on are those who begin to seduce us, who begin to trick us, those who begin to erode our integrity, those who erode our purity, our, even our desire for purity, those who begin to say the wall's not so bad, the smell's not so bad, that's, not, that's just normal. You see, everybody in Pergamum was a sex addict. That was the whole of the whole religion of Pergamum. Do you know up on that hill where all those temples were and where the temple to Zeus was? Worship was sexual. Whatever proclivity you had, whether it was you wanted men or you wanted women, you wanted boys, you wanted girls, you wanted people from slaves from exotic land, it didn't matter. There was provision for everything. And these who came in that he calls with the teaching of Balaam and those which are known as the followers of Nicholas, the Nicolaitans, they came in and said, look, we're not, we're not saying that the gospel isn't good and the gospel isn't great, but they're saying, look, God made you this way. God made you to where these drives and these needs that you have and this, this disposition that you have, you, you need to experience that. You, God would want you to satisfy that. And Jesus says, I'm going to bring a sword out of my mouth, not against you who struggle, but against those who teach you not to struggle. Now, are you quiet because you're listening? It's important that you get that because... If you go to the other extreme and you start to beat yourself up for struggling, then you're not being realistic. And you're not being Jesus. But if you allow yourself to say, I'm just going to give in. I'm just going to give up. Here's what Jesus, when he says, I have this against you in terms of sexual immorality. Jesus is saying something very, very clear. 
in all of the scripture, Paul says it, John says it, all of, all of the apostles say it, and he says this, all of us have these areas in which our freedom comes when we restrain our appetites. For example, if you're, if you're married, the call on your life is to love and to give all of your sexual desire and all of your, all of your uh, intimacy and oneness to your spouse. <laughs> when you, it's amazing to me uh, that people are willing to make the commitment in marriage where they say to have and to hold, to, to guard myself, to reserve myself only for this one that I'm in covenant with. I've never, ever had a marriage ceremony where they said, could you make some exceptions to that rule? They never say that. And yet, even the step in marriage of saying, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reserve myself for one person immediately triggers all kind of fear in people. I, I've been doing weddings for over 30 years. I have had so many grooms and so many brides the week before come up to me and say, say to me, do you mean I'm only going to have sex with this person for the rest of my life? And I said, yeah, that's what that means. I don't know if I can do that, they said. And then I've had numerous ones come up to me and say, you know, right now, she or he is the least attractive person in the world to me. And everybody else is so attractive to me right now. There's something about what Jesus is asking when you marry that goes against the grain, that goes against the, what might seem to be natural in a sense. But it, in a lot of ways, what he's asking, what he's asking is what he's made you for. For example, think about this with me. If you have a little kid... And they haven't played with toys for a long time. But their cousins show up and start playing with the toys. You ever notice those become the most precious toys in all of their toys? You ever say to anybody, you can't go there. You can't do this. What happens to them? Suddenly that becomes the only place they want to go. It becomes the only thing they want to do. There's something that happens to us when we think we're being restrained or we're being limited, that makes us think we're losing our freedom. So Jesus here is saying to you, if you're single, whether you have same-sex attraction or other sex attraction, he's saying, if you're single, then you keep yourself for God. And if you're married, you keep yourself for your spouse. And he's saying, on the basis of his love for you, his desire for you, his knowledge of you, that that is the very best thing for you and for your life. The Bible has the highest view of sex that you will ever see anywhere. And yet it also has a view of sex that says you don't need it. You don't have to have it to be a fulfilled person. Now that's hard for modern society to accept. It was hard for them to accept in Pergamum. As a matter of fact, this might be a silly way to look at it, but I've begun to think of it in this way. A fish is made for the water. If you take a fish out of the water, you give the fish freedom, but the, free, but the fish dies. 
it's no longer restrained to the water, but as soon as it's out of the water, it ceases to live in a short amount of time because it wasn't made for the water. I mean, for the, for the air to be out of the water. In the same way, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but I love, I love whales. I think whales are some of the most beautiful creatures that God has made. And yet, when a, ba- when a whale is on the beach, it's just, it might be freed from the water, but it's going to die. It's now out of an environment that it was made for. Now it's big, it's clumsy, it can't make itself you know, get enough moisture, it can't get enough air, and eventually, if in its freedom on the beach, the whale dies. If you put a whale in the ocean, and the whale dances, and the whale jumps, and the whale, it doesn't matter how big the whale, its size actually was made for the ocean. It may be hard to realize this, but when you go against what the Lord is asking you from your body, what he's asking you from your heart, what he's asking you in terms of maybe even what our culture would call sacrifice, when you go away from that, you're a beach whale. You're a fish out of water. But when you do that which he has asked you to do, when you reserve yourself, when you keep yourself, even if that means you go through your entire life and you never have a sexual experience, the Lord himself, will be the water that you live in. The Lord himself will be the satisfaction and the fulfillment, the husband, the wife, the, the, the lover, the intimate that he promises to be. Now, in Pergamon, they had voices that were yelling from the hilltops, come up here and satisfy yourself. They had voices at the entrance of the, of the city, come over here and fulfill yourself. They had begun to compromise with those voices because those voices had power, it seemed, had power over their economy, had power over their ability to support their family, seemed to have voices even over their own safety. And so what Jesus is saying is that because you have listened to these compromising teachers, now you are compromised. And so he asked of them this. Will you do this? Will you repent, he said. Will you repent? Here's what I'm realizing as I read this. It's a lot easier to be orthodox than it is to be obedient. It's a lot easier to have true doctrine than it is to be faithful. A lot of churches are Pergamon. They don't deny the name of Jesus. They don't deny the faith, but they compromise with the culture. The culture was saying, what is wrong with two consenting people doing whatever they want with their body? And Jesus was saying, your body belongs to me. And what you do with your body matters to me. And so you need to repent of who owns your body. And in this passage, he says something that only Jesus can say to you. I can't say it to you, but Jesus can say it to you. He says, partial faithfulness is unfaithfulness. Partial obedience is disobedience. See, in in this world, if you have a little bit of righteousness and you compare favorably to your neighbors, you might be tempted to call that faithfulness. 
or if you have a little bit of uh, some areas where you're somewhat obedient and you compare favorably to those around you, you might be tempted to say, look how obedient I am. But Jesus says in this letter to his church, and he's the Lord of the church, and he gets to speak this to his church. He says, partial obedience is disobedience. Partial faithfulness is unfaithfulness. And he asks us to repent of that. Now, he gives us two reasons to make that step. He says, this is the reward of those who will hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. The first reward is this. <coughs> he says, there's such a thing for those who do not compromise. There's such a thing that he calls hidden manna. I believe what he means by this is, is multifaceted, but I, I would say this. They are having to give up going to feast of their union. They're having to give up feast of going of giving up feasts of their political parties. They're having to give up feasts even of their own families because in those feasts, there's worship of idols. They're having to lose their position. They're having to lose even their means of, of gaining a living. And what Jesus is saying is that if you're willing to overcome, if you're willing to be uncompromised, then what I have for you, though not apparent, will appear and it will it will sustain you. Now, what he's saying here, and, and some of you know this, and you will, you will immediately agree with me. Others of you, you will struggle with this because you haven't seen it yet. There are times when it makes no sense to be obedient. When everything in you is crying out, just go ahead and satisfy your desires. Just give in. Just go ahead and compromise God wouldn't want you unhappy. And yet Jesus says, sometimes you don't know the fullness of what he has for you till you've gone through the crisis of belief that leads to obedience. But once you are obedient, you start saying, wow, you had this for me? You had this? There are those of us in this room, and, and again, this is nowhere near what he's asking his followers in Pergamon. But there are those of us in this room that God has spoken to us over the years and said, give 10% of your salary. There are some of us who God has said, give 20 and 15%. And, and, and when you hear that, you're like, Lord, I can't live on the 100%. How am I going to live on 10%? How am I going to live on, 50, you know, on, on 90% or 85% or 80%? How am I going to live on that when I can't even live on the 100 And yet many of you in this room have stepped out in faith because you knew it was the Lord and he supplied hidden manna. Because the bills got paid. Better on 80 than it did on 100. Suddenly things began to appear. Resources began. And again, I'm telling you, this is a much smaller thing than what he's asking Pergamum. But it's the principle that some things you do not experience until you step out in faith and you choose obedience, even if to your natural mind, it doesn't make sense. But it's always with this promise, the Lord has said to you, I have hidden manna for you. See, manna is provision. Manna is sustenance. Manna is the source, in a sense, of your ongoing life with Christ. But the second reward that he gives, he says, I'll give you this white stone with a name on it that no one else knows except you. 
there's three ways they used white stones in the, in the ancient world. The first was that, uh, that whole practice of blackballing people. So if you were included in a club or you were included in a group, you would get all white balls and, and no black. If you got one single black ball, you were out of the club. So that was one way that this was used, and it's continued to this day. The second way that was used is a jury would give their, uh, their, their decision about innocence or guilt. Innocence, white, uh, guilt, the black stones. And so these stones would come up. The third way that it was used is a white stone was given to the victor of a sporting contest. And on that stone was written the name of the person, and, and it was given them to signify the victory. In some ways, all three of these are true of what Jesus is saying. He has taken upon himself the black ball, the rejection, so that you can enter in. He has taken upon himself your guilt so that instead of a verdict of guilty, you now get the verdict of righteous. And he also, as you overcome this compromising spirit, then he gives you the victory, white stones. But here's the beauty of it. On there is a new name for you, a name you've always wanted to be true of you. I would think with Antipas, the new name was courage, courageous. It's a name that will deeply speak to what you have gone through. Now, for me, this, is, this has been a really personal message as I studied Pergamum, because I grew up in a church that was all about doctrine, that was all about you know, being orthodox, being correct, being right, and at the same time, there was sexual immorality. Our pastor was having an affair for nine years that I was a kid. So there was all this right doctrine and yet, corruptness of heart, compromising of values. I, I don't know about you, but one of the things, when you realize someone is compromised, you read it, it's one of the most disillusioning things that you can ever, ever experience. Because to have said one thing and lived another, you just feel like your whole world kind of gets shattered by it. It's a hypocrisy, a deception, that leaves a horrible taste in our mouth. And, and what Jesus is saying is that, that in this struggle that we all go through, he's asking us to make a commitment to the struggle. That there's something noble about the struggle, not, not something noble about compromise. I, I have walked intentionally with Jesus for 46 years. I will tell you this, the only thing I regret in those 46 years is where I compromised where I did what I wanted to do or what my heart told me to do or what my flesh told me to do, those are the only regrets. Any place that I have willingly sacrificed but obedience to Christ, I have no regrets whatsoever. As a matter of fact, in those places, I feel like a whale in the ocean who dances and, and, and soars at the same time. I, I'm calling you today to be not those who give up and say, I can't take this struggle anymore, even if it's coming straight from the, the author of the struggle that Jesus says is Satan himself. But to really stand in there and to be the victors who say, there's hidden manna for me. There's hidden manna for me. And there's a white stone with my name on it. Would you stand with me? Does this make sense today? You're so quiet, I cannot tell. 
Usually there's some, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Am I alone in this today? Again, can I just, can I say this really clearly? This isn't John's words. It's not my words. It's Jesus who has a problem with compromise. And it's Jesus who has a problem with teachers of compromise. He calls them in the same spirit of Balaam. And the Nicolaitans were basically a sex cult that was trying to get into the church. And what he's upset is they didn't take their stand against it. Because they personally started compromising, they started corporately compromising. And there's some real truth to that. If, if your own personal life doesn't, in a sense, reflect a high sense of integrity and a desire to be both who you are privately and publicly, one and the same, then you'll start compromising your theology. And you'll start compromising your obedience. And then you'll begin to teach and seduce others to do the same. Jesus says, to those who do that, I'm coming with a sword in my mouth. You don't have to take them down. He'll take them down. That's an interesting thing. All right. I know I've gone on, but are you with me? Can you hear me? Okay. We have some, we have some prayer ministers here today. If you sense that you've been struggling and you've started to give in to the struggle in any way, and you're starting to say, I'm starting to compromise, or I'm starting to let go of my true stand for for purity for righteousness for christ again i'm not talking about a legalistic performance rule oriented baloney i'm talking about true heart devotion to jesus where he is the love and if he says to you refrain from sex if he says it that's enough for me if he says to you only have sex in marriage that's enough for me and you begin to realize it's his voice not your heart's voice, that is true. The world will never die for you. The world does not love you. The world wants you to compromise because, because behind it is the one who hates you. The Jesus who asks you to do what is seemingly sometimes impossible to do has hidden manna to sustain you as you do it. And to those that overcome, there's going to be something very meaningful, very relevant, that he gives to you on that day and you'll say, wow, it was worth it. Uh, hear me on this one. I just feel this very strongly. There are a lot of people who say to me all the time, boy, when I get to heaven, he's got a lot to answer for. I cannot tell you what a load of crap that is. Now, please, I'm being as mean as I possibly can right now. Because it, that you are not going to say that because if you're saying that, then you're only in this for God to be your leverage to make your life what you want it to be. Yeah, What he's saying in these messages is he is Lord. He's the leader. He's the one that is the one who can speak into our hearts. And if he says, Smyrna, you're going to have to die for me, then Smyrna gets a choice to say, Lord, I choose to die for you. But if I die, I'm not going to die complaining. I'm going to die in glory. It, it, Ephesus, you need to find your love for me again. They said, well, you know, you don't do what we want you to do, so we don't love you anymore. He goes, okay, remember what, remember what I did for you? 
Remember that you were not a people and now you're a people. Remember you were objects of God's wrath, but now you're the objects of his mercy and his grace. You know what? Any believer, when they, when they see Jesus' face, they're not going to ask him questions. They're going to look into his eyes and the tears in their own eyes. They're going to say, everything I lost was worth it. Everything I gave up, everything I did out of obedience for you, I wish I could do even more. Because when you look in his eyes, you won't be asking him questions. Your answers will be in his eyes. Start now. This is the only time you have to give to Jesus by faith. When you see him, it will all be sight. This is the time you can give. This is the sightless, in a sense, faith that you can give to him as your sacrifice. Lord, we seal what you're doing right now. My sense is, my sense is, Lord, you're stirring, maybe in some an anger and some a resistance to this because it's so new or different to them. And to others, though, it's, it's coming. Even as I look at my own life in those areas where I'm always so tempted to compromise, those areas that I struggle with my own brokenness, it's speaking to me in a way that rises up my spirit and says, I want to be an overcomer. I don't want to just give in and, and limp into glory. I want to step up. I want to see faith arise. I want to see God arise and his enemies scattered. So we, we ask for that for us as a corporate body. That there would be an uncompromising passion for Jesus here. Whatever you ask, we do. Whatever you speak, we say. In Jesus' name. Please don't, don't leave without having a prayer. If there's something you want to do, some business with God, we have some, our elders, our prayer people will be here at the, the platform. They'll pray with you. God bless you, and we'll see you next week.